The farmers viewed with great alarm the flag of red the transport flew. There was consternation in every farm, from the hilltops of Moynihan to the graveyard of Gortru. That verse about the red flag was from the pen of Moss O'Regan, Transport Union Branch Secretary in 1921 in Bartlemy in East Cork in the south of Ireland. You're listening to Peers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land, and in this episode, the rebels have become the peelers, and we're going to be looking at a time 100 years ago when the Irish Republican Army of both the anti-treaty and the pro-treaty variants were the law on the land. I'm your host, Terry Dunn, and uh, there's been quite the gap of time since the last episode. Part of the reason for that is a couple of other projects you might be interested in, so I'll tell you a bit about that before we get on to the episode proper. First off, I've taken on the duties of Leash Historian in Residence under the Decade of Centenaries programme. So check out the Leash Library Local Studies website, and under articles there, you'll see articles I've written, and new ones came out regularly over the winter and early spring, all about varied aspects of the revolution in Leash. That's at leashlocalstudies.ie. It's an easy web address to remember. Have a read. They're all short articles, you know, less than a 10 or 15 minutes to read each. So we should also be having some events in the next few months, and some of them are likely to be online, so you'll be able to attend irrespective of where you are in the world. So I should thank the people who have made it possible for me to have a little bit of funded research, as mostly I do not have funding. In fact, almost all my research is unfunded. Uh, Speaking of which, we will be developing ways for listeners to support the Peelers and Sheep project, which at the moment is costing me money as well as time, so we could inject a bit of sustainability on that front. So that's one bit of news, and the other bit of news is that I'll have a book out this year with John Cunningham of NUI Galway, and the National University of Ireland Galway, entitled The Spirit of Revolution. Um, it's a collection of essays by various authors looking at local strands of the Irish Revolution in a bottom-up history from below way. Uh, it's coming out in Four Courts Press, so make sure to keep an eye out for that. The theme of the volume is, is, is pretty much in keeping with the, the focus of this podcast. It also takes a fair bit of time to put the episodes together because, in large part, I'm not reading someone's book here and telling you what's in the book. There isn't an awful lot of primary research goes into this project and a lot of that is stumbling in the dark because there's not an awful lot of literature to help guide me on the way. Uh, Emma O'Connor's Syndicalism in Ireland was one book I was using for this episode but you know that covers the entire country over a six year time frame. There's still a lot of digging to be done to get into the nitty gritty of local events. Now if you listen to the last episodes, the pandemic special episodes, Perhaps you'll have been expecting to hear about the Blessed Turf, something which sounds more than a bit Father Ted. The Blessed Turf was a religious ritual that spread in response to the cholera epidemic of the early 1830s, the first cholera in Europe. I have that recorded, but I'm holding off on releasing it because I think it will work better in a series on that actual time period. And I am hoping to get back to that period, the uh, early 19th century, and with a broader scope taken in England and the West Indies, and to do something with that. So I'll, I'll probably put out the, the Blessed Turf um, episode then. So going forward, we have to build up more of a listenership. Only really worth doing um, if there's an audience there for it. So if you've appreciated the Peelers and Sheep content, then put the word out there. Share news of the announcements on social media. And Peelers and Sheep is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And it's particularly Twitter I'm using. Thanks to everyone who is retweeting the announcements of new episodes and the like. And if you've listened to the podcast and like it, well, don't keep it a secret. 
Now, that's enough of all that. Let's get back to the world of 100 years ago and to the lush green Limerick heartland of Ireland's dairy industry. So, this episode is kind of continuing on the story of the farm workers' movement in the Irish Revolution from our very first episode, The Forgotten, which is on the 1919 Meath and Kildare farm strike. But now as we go into 1921 and 1922, the objective conditions, shall we say, are different. There is a very different uh, immediate political and economic context. So as I said there, there are major changes as we get into the early 1920s. The special circumstances of the Great War, the 1914 to 1918 war, have come to an end. That was a real boom period for Irish agriculture. And at the same time, there was massive state intervention to make sure the food was there to feed the munitions workers in the factories and the Tommies in France and Flanders. Those special conditions carried on for the immediate post-war years. But then the end to it came in 1920 and 1921. First off, the slump began in autumn 1920 when food prices in Britain began to decline steadily and the World War I boom period for Irish agriculture ended with that. The British market was open again to a wider variety of producers across the globe, such as those in Denmark. Some of the larger farmers had got particularly indebted in the boom period because the British government was fairly generous with credit facilities for Irish agriculture. So there's the matter of paying back creditors while in a recession. Then in October 1921, there's the end of the Agricultural Wages Board that set minimum wages and conditions for agriculture on a local basis. And also in 1921, there's the end of the Corn Production Act, which compelled farmers to put more land under the plough. That's to produce cereals or vegetables rather than the luxury of beef. So with these changes, it's altogether a much more disadvantageous situation for farm workers than that prevailing in 1919. The state intervention of compulsory tillage made for more call for workers. Yeah, there was more employment there, so it gave workers more power. And they were also afforded some protection by the state intervention of the Agricultural Wages Board, yeah? Um, because the state wanted to keep a farm labour supply there. It didn't want to create a food supply crisis by by, by more and more workers leaving um, agriculture in the context that they're not being able to be the same amount of imports from abroad to the United Kingdom. Now, there's two other things to bear in mind as we come into the winter of 1921. First, we're talking now about winter strikes. So these are industrial conflicts happening in the slack period when there's least demand for labour. And so that's where you have a particular advantage then for employers. And for that reason, perhaps, simple withdrawal of labour as a tactic might not suffice. And we see more aggressive tactics coming to the fore, such as burnings and kidnappings. Though it should be stressed more militant tactics prevailed at the time in other industries as well. So this wasn't just a matter of agricultural peculiarities. Now, the Voice of Labour of December 10th, 1921, actually carried an article entitled How to Win Winter Farm Strikes. The Voice of Labour was the newspaper of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, and most unionised farm workers were at this stage in its ranks. So let's see what How to Win Farm Strikes had to say. Quote, Ten days stoppage finished the farmers in Gortrow Yall area, but the men did not content themselves with merely staying out of the jobs and looking over the ditches. Realising that they were battling against going with their families on starvation wages and that mild tactics would not bring victory in a winter agricultural stoppage. The men made each day 24 hours of crowded life for the farmers, whom they worried, harassed and hit from every feasible angle. And despite the employer's stubborn resistance and the hostility of some of the farmer element in the Irish Republican police, finally won out in a week and a half. 
Now, Labour historian Emma O'Connor puts a big qualification on the uh, upbeat tone of that article. Apparently this, quote, uh, extreme rhetoric was disguising the fact that modified wage cuts were accepted in these court disputes. And indeed, rather than over, it all being over in 10 days, there was still a dispute going on in Gort Row in February 1922. The situation in the Kilmalik district in East Limerick um, related to the refusal of farmers to pay a harvest bonus. And that was not an insignificant thing. A harvest bonus could be the equivalent of several weeks' wages. The dispute seems to have happened, seems to have got started in the uh, Bulgadin area, which is in the northeastern hinterland of Kilmalik Town. On the 22nd of November 1921, a headline in the Freeman's Journal screamed, Red Flag in Kilmalik. The Evening Echo of the 18th of November 1921 explains the background. This is quoting the Evening Echo. One dairy farmer who keeps a stock of 50 milch cows and whose family were able to carry on the work purchased a hand separator immediately the strike started and took to butter making. On last Tuesday night his house was entered and the separator broken. That's what the Evening Echo said. So basically there was enough family labour to milk the cows but nothing to do with the milk because they couldn't take it to the creamery owned to the strike and the solution is to buy their own separator to process the milk into butter and the other side solution to that was to sabotage the separator. I think there are some breeds that would be okay but by and large you cannot leave a cow unmilked so they would have to milk the cows and waste the milk. Now, after this sabotage, the Irish Republican Army arrested four members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. Then they, that's the IRA, were given till Saturday to release the arrestees or a local general strike would commence. And Saturday morning, having arrived with no releases, so too did the general strike commence. It didn't have to last very long as the arrested transport workers were released on the, the, the following Monday. The uh, Irish Examiner reported the dramatic scenes on Saturday morning. Quote, On Saturday, all the strikers, numbering upwards of 700 men, paraded the streets in processional order, carrying the red flag. They marched to the railway station and lined up on the platform as the remains of the late Alderman Tyg Barry were passing on the 9.30am train from Dublin. They subsequently returned to the town and were disbanded outside the transport union rooms. And the late alderman, Tyg Barry, well, who was he? Well, we'll have an aside on Tyg Barry for a minute. Well, fortunately, at the moment, he has been rescued from the uh, obscurity his memory languished in for much of the last hundred years. And there is, for instance, at the moment, a new book out on him. But he was a major figure when he died. Shot by a sentry in a prison camp only weeks from when he would have been released. So who was he? He was the founder of Sinn Féin in Cork City. But he later defected to the All for Ireland League. But later again, he was elected to local government on a joint Sinn Féin Transport Union ticket, was branch secretary for the Transport Union Cork, also a full-time organiser for the Transport Union, and he was also involved in cultural nationalism in the Gaelic League and the Gaelic Athletic Association. Uh, he was a sports journalist and actually wrote the first hurling rulebook. So a major figure in republicanism, in cultural nationalism, but also on the left and involved in the workers' movement. His funeral was really a massive event, but then it got overshadowed by the treaty split within Irish separatism, which is what is most remembered today of the winter of 1921 and 22. The strike dragged on into January of 1922, and honestly, things just got crazier. Major T.D. Hannan, a mill manager in Mallow, which is about 30 kilometres south of Kilmanock, was kidnapped in a situation seemingly arising out of an industrial dispute in the mill. 
That's Major, as in British Army officer. He was wounded in Gallipoli with the 7th Royal Munster Fusiliers. Now, the kidnapping actually happened before the mills were taken over by the workforce, something which happened at the end of January. The kidnapping was in the middle of January. So the IRA scoured the country looking for him, and they found him in Kilmallock. IRA man Jeremiah Daly recounted to the Bureau of Military History about this episode. He got the uh, the events, he got his events slightly in the wrong order. He was, would have been talking to the Bureau of Military History 30 years afterwards, so it's fair enough. Um, anyways, in Daly's words, quote, Early in 1922, Mallow Mills were taken over by the employees on behalf of the Labour Party. The red flag was flown over the premises. At the same time, the proprietor of the mills was kidnapped. In order to maintain law and order in the area, the battalion OC ordered a guard to be placed on the mills to keep a check on the activities of the party who had seized the premises. A thorough search of the area was carried out by the IRA in an endeavour to establish the whereabouts of Major T.D. Hallinan, the owner of the mills, and to secure his return. He was eventually found by members of the local IRA in Bulgadon County Limerick, where he was being held a prisoner. On his return to Mallow, a guard was supplied for his home while the guard arrangements already in operation at the mill continued. Now, as I said, uh, Daly's chronology is a, is a bit off there and also Hallinan was a manager at the mill rather than the owner, as, as far as I can make out. Um, then there were more kidnappings. Let's assemble the chronology. Hallinan was found on Sunday, January 15th. The day before, the Saturday, there was another kidnapping. And this is the... Uh, what the, the London newspaper, the Pall Mall Gazette, said. Quote, Another sensation has been caused by the kidnapping on Saturday night of Mr Lynham, secretary of the Mallow branch of the Irish transport workers. A meeting of the branch was being held when two lorries drove up to the door. Men entered the meeting and asked Mr Lynham to accompany them. End quote. Uh, before this, a Patrick O'Donnell, a farmer of the strike-bound Bulgadin district, had already been kidnapped and was released on Friday, January 13th. So this looks like a series of kidnappings and retaliatory kidnappings. Something similar as to went on in an agrarian dispute in Clare in 1923, where a property owner, Mrs Crow, was kidnapped, and then a bunch of, I guess, I suppose you call the local usual suspects were kidnapped, presumably by the Free State military, though they disguised themselves with English accents. Not sure if what the Pall Mall Gazette called the kidnapping habit was more widespread than that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. Also, by the middle of January, the County Limerick Farmers Association was claiming that winter sabotage by match, or arson basically, had consumed property worth £4,000 and announced a plan to launch a rates non-payment campaign. That is a call to refuse the, to pay local authority taxes or rates if the government didn't step in. A later newspaper report bumped the damage account up to £7,000. These wild claims should, of course, always be taken with a pinch of salt. In late January, the two parties settled for arbitration after a conference conducted by Commandant O'Hannigan, OC East Limerick Brigade, IRA. Uh, This came after O'Hannigan declared martial law and drafted volunteers into the area to protect farmers' property, which came after the lobbying of the government by the Limerick Farmers Association and their proposal to boycott any town where creamery workers were boycotting the milk from farmers involved in the strike, and furthermore to, as I said, to begin a campaign of non-payment of rates, rates being the local government taxation. So involved in the arbitration process was anti-treaty Sinn Féin TD Sean Moylan, who was OC Cork No. 2 Brigade and hence presumably in charge of at least part of the search for the major in Mallow and in opposing the takeover of the mills there. 
Uh, on the arbitration board was also the local doctor and the local priest. The board broke down in recrimination in early March. Moylan was there to represent the workers, the doctor, the farmers and the parish priest as a neutral chair. Uh, but Moylan and the priest had a falling out, a falling out which would make one question the neutrality of the chair. The ruling made in Moylan's absence and um, not recognised by the transport union was that um, no bonus should be paid, no payment should be made for the period of the strike, um, but wages should be paid full to the date of the strike, November the 2nd, and three, there'd be no victimisation. Now, Moylan actually agreed that there was no grounds for a harvest bonus, but blamed farmers for the dispute in the first place. So this arbitration seems to have been a way of putting things on the long finger, a sort of sop while the IRA prevented the winter strike tactics from making their bite. So in this respect, Moylan's role was a sort of precursor of the corporatism that we would associate with the Fianna Fáil party. Anyways, it is worth noting the heterogeneous nature of the movement and the lots of different potentialities contained in it. On the one hand, you have workplace occupations and red flags. On the other, Sean Moylan as an arbitrator. In any case, the strike continued on a very reduced scale, at least into the summer of 1922. But it would, I think, be fair to paint this as a defeat for the farm workers' movement. But it should be noted everything was very localised. Elsewhere in the country the movement was still holding its own. There wasn't only employment conditions on farms themselves that was a source of conflict between local farmers and the labour movement. There was also the whole campaign for direct labour, for local authorities to hire people directly to carry out road maintenance, as opposed to relying on subcontracting, double-jobbing farmers. So there's a report from the Voice of Labour newspaper about that's simultaneous with the Kilmallock strike um, about direct labour, and both issues would have affected the same group of workers since there was a crossover between people employed in farm work and people employed in road maintenance. Specifically, what the article regarding direct labour in Kilmallock was about was a quarry. So a report on the November the 19th in the Voice of Labour read, quote, All last winter and previous winters, while many of our road workers were on the brink of starvation, Farmer Roach, his three quarrying sons and quarrying daughters, can any other branch tell of a female in this occupation? We're busy raking in the cash from Limerick County Council. Several weeks ago, we calmly told the county surveyor that this was not to continue. Unlike many others of his profession, he did all be required. By refusing Roach's new quarry stuff and buying out a new quarry, where 50 of our men find much-needed employment. Farmer Roach and his quarrying flock are just now rubbing their chins and wondering what this red hand is at all at all. The red hand, yeah, the article talks about the red hand, the symbol of the province of Ulster, from the medieval heraldry of the de Burg Earls of Ulster, because the red hand was used as a symbol of the transport union. If I remember right, I think the plan was to use different symbols of the different provinces at different times, but the great Dublin lockout against the union happened in 1913, while the red hand was being used as a union symbol, so they stuck with the red hand as an icon of proud defiance. So anyways, there is this constant conflict with farmers, not necessarily only with employing farmers, and even farmers with quite small farms would have been employers in these days long before mechanisation. But also conflict over who gets, whether it is local government contracts or local government employment and so on. Now that's important to bear in mind for the next episode where we'll be looking at the broader issue of the labour movement's agrarian policy. Before we go any further, make sure to subscribe to be sure hearing that in future episodes and make sure to share news of the Peters and Sheep project on social media. You can subscribe to Peters and Sheep on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. What happened with the mills in Mallow is they were restored 
to their owner by the IRA on February 8th, 1922. They'd been taken over on January 26th, so that's about two weeks that the workforce were in occupation. In the newspapers, there was a correspondence between Michael Collins on behalf of the provisional government and Court Chamber of Commerce over the IRA's actions in this regard. There's a letter from Hallinan, the aforementioned kidnapped manager, to Richard Mulcahy, IRA Chief of Staff in the National Library, where he thanks him on behalf of the firm for, quote, the protection afforded us during the recent labour trouble, end quote. Uh, Hallinan also enclosed a cheque for £50 to IRA funds. The split within the IRA into anti-treaty and pro-treaty factions had yet to be formalised. So while Mulcahy and Collins were pro-treaty, the IRA in Mallow were anti-treaty. The funny thing, though, is the letter is in the trade union leader William O'Brien's papers, not Richard Mulcahy's. Uh, so this is a new situation now, a situation where a local Irish state will be playing the repressive role, defending the existing distribution of property, defending management's right to manage. There is still in early 1922 something of a state of flux. Large areas of the country are falling under the sway of the anti-treaty IRA rather than the free state. The anti-treaty IRA being the hardline section of the nationalist movement that did not accept the recent concord with London. But as we can see, both pro- and anti-treatyites were trying to clamp down on, quieten or divert manifestations of social discontent. Not only with these happenings in Kilmallock and Mallow, but elsewhere as well. For instance, in May 1922, James Chambers, OC, issued a proclamation in the name of West Mayor Brigade IRA, stating that all commanded lands and property must be forthwith restored to their lawful owners, and the trespassing on lands, breaking down of fences and cattle driving must cease. The proclamation further states that action of drastic nature will be taken against any person or persons persisting in such acts of disorder. Indeed, iconic veteran left Republican Frank Ryan related in the 1930s his guilt of what he had been at in 1921, telling his Republican Congress comrade Patrick Byrne that, to quote what Byrne wrote in the 1980s, he was commanded to take his unit of the East Limerick Battalion to a local creamery that had been taken over by the workers who were flying the red flag, and to eject them. Frank carried out his orders and hauled down the red flag. (laughs) 